The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Friday, January 17th, 2020 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca and Daniel Patrick Moynihan did not start the crack epidemic. He probably didn't even use crack. I hasten to clarify because in a meeting with the New York Times editorial board, the board thought it necessary to correct any impression that Joe Biden may have given that Daniel Patrick Moynihan, the longest serving senator in the history of New York State, gave us all crack. For that, my friends, would be whack. Here now, I shall read the transcript of Joe Biden's interview with the New York Times editorial board. Biden, I made a big mistake in the criminal justice side when I, it's easy to forget now, but when all of a sudden crack was introduced as a great threat to the United States of America, and the guy who did this is a great guy, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, he pointed out it was coming from the Bahamas, and this was going to, and then he gets off on another tangent. But at that point in the transcript, the Times plunks in these words. To clarify, Senator Moynihan did not introduce crack to the United States. And it explains what he did do, all his many achievements in not introducing crack to the United States. But Biden's point was that in raising Moynihan was something along the lines of, and it was Moynihan, great guy who pointed out how bad crack was and who was instrumental in writing the early legislation. And his overall point was the legislation on crack as compared to powder cocaine was too harsh. But yeah, thanks times. Thanks for the Moynihan clarification. But this is, this is what Biden does when he talks. He meanders. He was obviously saying that Moynihan did something good and then he lost his train of thought. And this, of course, happened during the debates, would often happen during the debates. And the New York Times kind of called him out on another case of his thoughts going off the rails. Question, New York Times, you said during the September debate when asked about reparations that black parents should, among other things, make sure that you have the record player on at night. How specifically should the country confront its history of slavery, discrimination, and plunder of black America? Biden answer, well, I think you're taking that out of context, but that's okay. New York Times editorial board member, actually it wasn't out of context, but that's kind of the point. Biden's mind is out of context. I mean, the question from the debate was, what responsibility do you think that Americans need to take to repair the legacy of slavery in our country? And Biden started talking about segregation, then redlining, then on to teaching. My wife's a teacher, then playing the radio and learning words and eventually record players. I mean, maybe Biden's technically right. It was out of context, but there's very little context there. There's less syntax. In any event, the lesson is clear, and let us not forget it. Daniel Patrick Moynihan did not give us crack. Bob Dole did invent whippets, just saying. On the show today, more extracts from the New York Times editorial board. This time, we consider the bread angle. But first, things are not going well for the dodo, the great auk, the Irish elk, and the desert bandicoot. Okay, so that's a few extinct animals. Also add to that list, 75% of all insects over the last 40 years. Whoa, this is getting serious. This is not just an extinction bigger. This is a mass extinction bigger. This is a mass extinction event. Put a vent on the end of something, you make it sound really big, like uh, with a Toyotathon. So there are so many animals going extinct that they're saying 
that we are in the middle of the sixth great mass extinction event. They are saying that, but is that bullshit? Maria Konnikova is here to provide some clarity. I'm here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. And it's not just how good it looks, it's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity, using the most robust of materials. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect, via your passions in life. It is to explore with greater confidence. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. I can't always remember which number extinction we're at. I'm like C-3PO. The memory gets wiped clean. But uh, young, earnest Scandinavian children tell me we are at, I'm going to say the sixth great extinction. Let's count the extinctions. But let's also ask, we're in the middle of the sixth great extinction. Is that bullshit? Joining us now is Maria Konnikova. She is author of The Biggest Bluff. She joins us to talk about things that might be bullshit or, you know, might be bullshit in the sense that, wow, the environment is dying. What bullshit? Hello, Maria. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you, Mike? I'm well. Let's count the extinctions. Let's First, there was the dinosaurs. No, I don't even know. <laughs> what were the... Are, am I right? Is it sixth that we're supposed to be yes. in the middle of? Yes. So first, the definition of okay. a mass extinction oh, is that... Was, yes, number after <laughs> fifth. Ah, the extinction is the one you're defining, right? Yep. Is that... Um, over three quarters of species have to be lost in a relatively short time. Oh, okay. Yep. And you are correct that we count five in the last 540 million years. We often like studies with large sample sizes. Uh-huh. This one has been running for 540 million years. Wow. Um, the first was the Ordovician-Silurian boundary, which was approximately what? 439 million years ago. Yeah. And at that point, about 25% of families and 60% of genera of the marine organisms were gone, um, probably due to warming and sea fluctuations. And we're talking about marine because vertebrates haven't evolved yet. Oh, so God. We're, we're counting still, mass extinctions yeah. before there were even vertebrates. Yep. Okay, So fine. that's the first one. Second one, late Devonian. Mm. Um, that's about 364 million I like the Devonian's ago. earlier work. They played like CBGB and then yeah, sold out. Yeah, yeah. But and late then, Devonian's good. They got pretty big. And then everything changed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. I saw that behind the music, yeah. Yep. At that point, we've got 22% of marine families are gone and 57% of genera, including all jawless fish. Aww. Aww. Bye-bye, Aww. jawless fish. <laughs> um, and here we think it's because of global cooling after a bolide impact. Um, and amphibians are just evolving during this time, and they survive. So they started evolving during the very end of this um, era, and they continue through this extinction. Cool. Now we're into the third, which is the Permian-Triassic extinction. That one was the worst. 95% of all species, water, and land die out. 
uh-huh. during this extinction. Uh-huh. Um, we, I mean, the worst for them, the best for us, because without them, there couldn't have been the Triassic period, for instance. This is true. This is true. So we've got marine, we've got land plants, insects, vertebrates, and they're basically, most of them are wiped out. And for all of these, the causes aren't 100% certain, but leading cause um, is floods due to volcanism, which leads to climate change. Yeah. Fourth, and you are absolutely correct, we've got Triassic coming up. So now this is the end Triassic extinction. It's 199 to 214 million years ago, so practically modern times. But I like that range. It's like, okay, (laughs) that's only 15 million years. That's fine. We'll peg it to 15 million years. It's going to raise some questions when we get to our own period. But please continue. Um, So, and that one was caused by the Atlantic Ocean opening. I blame the Atlantic. uh, Yeah, Yeah. seafloor spreading caused by massive lava floods Uh and global warming. It happens. Amphibians are surviving this one, too. Now we've got the fifth, and that's about 65 million years ago, and this is the one where the dinosaurs died. Right. Asteroids. We think. Asteroids. Either an asteroid in the Gulf of Mexico or volcanic floods in India. Huh. That lead to warming. Asteroid. Um, yep. So the question is, asteroid, are we now in the sixth? Yeah. So what's the um, evidence that we are? So first, since humans have evolved, we've had some extinctions, okay. right? And they've they've gone in patterns. But that was what, like 50,000 years yeah, ago? So yeah, so in about 50,000 years ago um, in Australia, you had the first kind of extinctions happen when humans came. And then 10 to 11,000 years ago, that happened in North America and South America when humans came there. Um, and then three to 12,000 years ago in Europe. Um, and we think that it's because of hunting, because of natural climate change, and potentially because of disease. Uh-huh. Um, so humans are the first species that becomes actually incredibly mobile. And so then in the Holocene, which was about 11,000 years ago, um, there are two hypotheses for why a lot of species went extinct back then. One is the overkill hypothesis, and that's because... Invented oh, by John Overkill. Yep, exactly. Yeah. That's exactly right. Um, that humans killed the animals. But then the other hypothesis is that it was indirect because of infectious disease. Um, and then in 1500 AD, we actually start seeing an acceleration in species dying. But there's a lot of evidence that suggests, and a lot of scientists who think that we're just now, over the last 30 or so years, 30, 40 years, um, entering what can be potentially the sixth mass extinction. And they think it's mostly caused by climate change, habitat destruction, modification. Uh And by the way, habitat modification also includes invasive species because humans become mobile. We travel places on ships. We travel places on planes. We bring species with us. We study species. Then we release species. Species go where they've never gone before. So invasive species is actually also indirectly humanly caused. So first of all... Some people say, you know, right away, bullshit, extinction happens, extinction has always happened. But what scientists have tried to do is, okay, well, what would natural extinction look like? And what would a mass extinction event look like? Uh Are the rates of change of species and animals disappearing and plants disappearing, which pattern does it Mm -hmm. fit into? And... From all of the data that I've been able to find, we're hundreds of magnitudes above the natural extinction rate. Okay. I have many questions. Yeah, so you yeah. said about 30 to 40 years ago, it began really exploding? 
Yeah. So when I'm born in 1971, it's not just that no one's talking or invented this phrase mass extinction to apply to the current. It's no one's noticing it. There is no there wasn't uh, an accelerated die off of uh, species in 1972. No, people were noticing it, but a lot of people were dismissing it uh-huh. um, and saying that, you know, oh, it's just natural extinction. Yeah. And a lot of people were j- looking at actual extinctions, like complete extinction, as opposed to what's happening within this specific population, what's happening around the world, what's happening to this type of thing. And a lot of it people haven't noticed until relatively recently because it's one of these things where it happens very gradually and then all of a sudden you're like, holy shit, we don't have insects anymore. Okay, so with insects, we're at 75%, which would be mass extinction. How about with all the other animals? So I've been able to find numbers for a lot of them. Amphibians, they've been very hardy throughout a lot of the extinctions, and it looks like they're not as hardy throughout this extinction. There was a study that looked in Costa Rica over five years. And by the way, when you, in order to do these studies well, they're often incredibly localized, but they use methods that can then apply to a lot of, a lot of different areas. But in order to really kind of use traps and like tag animals and really track how many of them are dying, how many of them are reproducing, et cetera, et cetera, you just almost inherently have to be localized. Um, So the fact that it's just in Costa Rica doesn't mean it's a bad study, Mm -hmm. is is all I'm saying. (laughs) Um, So there was a five-year study with daily monitoring in Costa Rica. Oh, I see, just in Costa Rica. For a second, I thought you were throwing, much like the Costa Rican rainforest itself, throwing Costa Rica shade. No, no, no. I just meant that they they studied it in Costa Rica. If you had to pick one country, a fine country (laughs) to study this, yes. Um, And 40% of species were lost within that five years. All right. And it seems like the decline started in the late 1980s. Yeah. But then um, when they started looking around, they found that they had also disappeared from the Australian wet tropics, which is a totally different part of the world, for those who are paying attention, from Costa Rica. Um, and the current rates for amphibians are 211 times what it would be for background extinction rates of amphibians, which is very high. And they found that it's two causes, um, global warming and also... I have no idea how to pronounce this. Chytridiomycosis. Is it? It's a disease. I didn't know it was chytridiomycosis. Yeah. So it's not, um, it's not, I was going to say Americans, but actually there are bad people who aren't Americans. It's not people (laughs) who are encroaching upon habitats. That's not what you're saying. No, no. Uh, Well, I mean, global warming comes Yes, that's a consequence of that in general. And some of the diseases are actually a consequence of that. So we know that, you know, some of the bee populations are declining because they're getting sick and that's... Because of human involvement. I think we covered that on cell phones killing the bees. Is that bullshit? Um, Well, yes. Yes. (laughs) Yes, we did that one. So disease is not humans killing them directly, but it's an, you know, it's all indirect effects of the world changing, humans expanding, habitats changing. I will caveat by saying, though, once we figure out it's a disease, diseases can actually be cured. And none of these things are final, yeah. right? If we figure out you know, how, how this is happening, what the specific disease is. But we can actually reverse them as long as there's no actual extinction. And you know, a, few, a few survive, then 
theoretically, you can still actually save these. But I think this is what I'm most interested in. Let's say we looked at it like the stock market and when the economy has whatever the definition Mm -hmm. is, it's not agreed upon, four straight quarters of loss, we call that a recession. So let's say we said we're in the whatever eighth recession because the stock market was going down. But what about other dips that didn't result in mass extinctions? Do we know if in the course of the world's history, there were levels of uh, species loss that are like our own that we rebounded from? So yes and no. I mean, we've we've talked about how since humans arrived, you've had these waves. And yes, some populations have definitely rebounded. Uh Um, But and it's always, you know, it's always impossible to know when you're in the moment. Yes. You know, is this going to rebound? Well, that's the but, thing. They say we're in the middle of the sixth great extinction. Yeah. Maybe uh, 268 million years ago, someone could say we're in the middle of it because populations have gone down 40%. But then for another 10 million years, every species or most of the species were still around. So I don't know what in the middle of it means. I mean, I think that they're saying that it's happening. Um, and you could theoretically, you know, if... We stopped climate change right now. Yeah. If humans, instead of, you know, encroaching on habitats and all this stuff, suddenly devoted 100% of their energies to saving all of these different species, then maybe not. But it seems like right now there's enough of a threat to a high enough percentage, and a high enough percentage has already disappeared. Yes. Um, that it seems like some of this stuff, I mean, the ones that have disappeared obviously are not coming back. And the answer is actually manifold. But you look at the scientific consensus and you will summarize what are people disagreeing about this? Is there if you asked a I don't know what would be the what would be the appropriate field of study? It wouldn't be a zoologist. It would be like a paleozoologist yeah. or something. If you ask all the most learned people in the field, is this the best and most accurate way of looking at it? Would they all agree? Yes, we are certainly in the or would a vast majority agree? Yes, we are in the, what we should call a mass extinction event. I think that at this point, a lot of them would agree that we are in what looks like a mass extinction event. I don't think anyone can know whether, you know, what is, what's going to happen in a hundred years, right? What, well, I'm thinking the million, the hundred I'm worried about. Yeah. <laughs> well, but see, it's going quickly enough. So the, the difference between this and previous extinction events is that humans have the capability of really accelerating stuff yes and making things happen on a time frame that hasn't been seen before because they're actually orchestrating a lot of this stuff so can they suddenly decide we want to completely wipe out species x yeah that mm-hmm. can happen too yeah. i don't think we have a historical equivalent unless we had humans in the past that no one knows about right that's the problem that's why we're talking about 100 years because we might get it to the irreversible part sooner than otherwise what would happen. If it were just, you know, climate change and species dying of climate change and humans basically stopped expanding right now, stopped like humans stopped all of their activities, mm-hmm. um, then I think we could probably, you know, recover some. I think that it's safe to say that we are losing species at a rate that is really alarming and is hundreds of times what it should be um, by natural extinction rates. And that we're losing species in percentages that are high enough to qualify for past mass extinction events. All right. So is that bullshit? To quote Greta Thunberg, we are in the middle or the beginning of a mass extinction. All right. Well, thank you for being extant 
Is that with, isn't that the opposite of yeah. extinct? Isn't that yes. weird? Yes. Extinct and extinct. Maria, I appreciate it very much. Maria Konnikova, author of The Biggest Bluff. She plays is that bullshit with us. Thanks again. Thanks, Mike. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. And now the spiel. I am getting really weary of political arguments that aren't real arguments meant to be taken sincerely. Unless, you know, they are taken sincerely, then yeah, I definitely meant it. There are a few flavors of this sort of argumentation. Let's establish a basis that we can both agree on. This is bad. Saying something that you say you're not serious about, and then it happens and you were serious about. Here's an example of that. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. Okay, I played that to establish one version of this phenomenon, one that we could both look at and say, yeah, that is bad. But there are other variations, and some of them go like this. You release a plan or float a proposal that can never happen and will never happen, but then you use it to strike out against everyone who points out that it can't happen as people who aren't taking the issue seriously. The U.S. will be carbon neutral by 2030. Well, actually, that really is unrealistic. Most experts say it's not going to possibly happen. Oh, yeah? Then you're not serious about it. Or, well, look how naive you are. We didn't really mean it. What we're doing is shifting the debate. Or, oh, I guess you don't dare to dream. You're an incrementalist. You're not as serious in your commitments as we are. Or you could compare it to other things that were once seen as impossible. What about the moonshot? Or you can use the phrase Overton window. And all of a sudden, your rather poor proposal isn't really about the actual substance and phrasing of the proposal. It's about some combination of tactics, magical thinking, and calls to arms, which is fine if you're an activist. In the age-old tension between journalism and activism, the sides were pretty clear. The journalists say, that's far-fetched. And the activists say, yeah, but still, reasons, 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 other than the actual text of the proposal. And then you, the news consumer, you can orient yourself accordingly. Let me give you an example of that. Hell yes, we're going to take your AR-15, your AK-47. Me, as a journalist, okay, here are some reasons why what Beto is saying is a rather tall order, though it might be a laudable end goal. And perhaps some activists would say, no, it can happen. You got to think big. You got to think bold. It's the moral thing to do. Second Amendment, we can handle that. Weapons ban, actually practical. It'll be popular. We have some specifically worded polling that says so. So that's how it works. Journalist, here are the facts. Activists, no, look at this interpretation. News consumer, okay, we understand. This has all been changing. 
And it's not just in the assessment of proposals that are meant as big swings. It's in the leveling of charges that are big insults. Opponents of candidates will often charge their opponents with all manner of malfeasance. It is the job of the journalist to put those charges to the candidate when those charges are warranted or to put those charges to rest when they are not warranted. If there is some gray area, you may want to know, How do you respond to what people are saying that you, I don't know, faked Native American heritage for academic gain, right? You're not, as a journalist, saying, I believe that you faked it, but this chatter is out there. Want to put it to rest? Many candidates will actually appreciate the opportunity to do so. All of this brings us to, of course, Canadian bread price fixing. Yeah, you know, it was going to go there. Kamloops Kaiser Rolls, Saskatchewan Semolina. British Columbian brioche. So in meeting with the New York Times editorial board, Pete Buttigieg faced this charge, put to him by editorial board member Benjamin Applebaum, he faced it head on. You've been on the front lines of corporate downsizing. You've been on the front lines of corporate price fixing. You've been on the front lines of our misadventures in foreign policy. You've had direct experience of many of the things that make a lot of young people very angry about the way that this country Uh, is operating right now, you don't seem to embody that anger. So the proposition that I've been on front lines of corporate price fixing is just to get that out of the way. You Um, worked for a company that was fixing bread prices. Politico's headline out of that exchange, bullshit, bull, S dot, 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 Buttigieg chafes at criticism over McKinsey work. The New York Times editorial board challenged the Democratic presidential candidate on his much-scrutinized corporate consulting experience. Buttigieg lashed out when asked about the controversy by the Times editorial board after journalist Benjamin Applebaum asserted that the candidate, quote, had been on the front lines of corporate downsizing and corporate price fixing. Applebaum tweeted this out. Link to the exchange labeled in which Mayor Buttigieg describes one of my questions as bullshit. An update soon thereafter, he links to the video. So, yeah, he got a rise out of Buttigieg, and Buttigieg said the nasty word. Buttigieg showed anger, and it's all on tape. Well done! As for the actual charge, oh yeah, it actually is bullshit. All right, bear with me. Here now, Canadian bread price-fixing facts. Loblaws, Canadian grocery store, was fixing the price of bread. Buttigieg worked for McKinsey, which advised Loblaws. So we're done here, right? Except the price fixing went on from 2001 to 2015. Buttigieg worked for the Loblaws account for six months in 2008. So in other words, seven years after the scheme started, seven years before it ended. Okay, so what you're saying is he's in the middle of it, right in the middle of the price fixing. Well, Loblaws says he wasn't, and he says he wasn't. Okay, okay, but how can you believe a price fixer and their price fixing flunky? Well, there was the fact that court documents show that the price of bread in Loblaws actually didn't go up in the year 2008. So what I'm saying is, if we were to be activists, we would smear Pete Buttigieg as one might smear, I don't know, a bagel with scallion cream cheese and tomato. First, people were looking at the McKinsey connection and saying, oh, maybe Buttigieg worked for the CIA. He didn't. But when it came out that he did work in the bread price fixing department, Then people were saying he fixed the price of bread, but he didn't. The thing is, those people saying it were activists. Since we're journalists, we shouldn't say these things if there is no evidence. But Applebaum did say those things. Okay, let's be fair to him. Maybe he just went too far in his phrasing or in his framing. 
I did ask him if he thought he did. He didn't get back to me. Fine. Oh, by the way, I'm not criticizing Applebaum for saying Buttigieg was on the front lines of corporate downsizing. That is more or less accurate. Buttigieg can handle that charge. And Buttigieg can handle the bread thing, and bullshit's a fine way to handle it. But the main takeaway from Buttigieg being angry over a bullshit question should be, for non-activists, that the question was bullshit. But it is not. And it is not... Even that among journalists. I read you Politico. On the left, there is delight in Buttigieg's discomfort. Mockery. But why? He didn't fix bread prices. It's also so stupid. Isn't it important not to be stupid? I asked some people who I respect who don't like Buttigieg. Why? Why was this such a delight? And basically the answer was, I just don't like the guy. I don't like the guy for a lot of visceral reasons. He seems smug and above all the problems he claims to care about. He's privileged. He's from the Ivy League. He's inexperienced. So if the bread charge bothers him, then serve me up a big loaf of that. It's not substantive. There are critics that are. To ask the bread question as a journalist is to act like an activist. And I think what's going on is it's a critique of Buttigieg. It's not an apt critique, but since the critique is a stand-in for another set of issues, or not even issues, sometimes feelings, then it's seen as acceptable? The proposal stands not as itself, but as an advertisement for the seriousness of the supporters of the proposal. The bill or resolution is not meant to be a law or policy. I'm a bit of a fool for taking it as such. It's meant as a strategy, a strategy far outside my ken. Is it okay if I just, as a journalist doing what I do, is it okay if I just look at proposals and facts as if they are meant to be proposals and facts, not symbols and fake facts meant to insinuate a larger point? Leave that work to the activists. Act like a journalist. The consumer deserves as much. And that's it for today's show. The associate producer of The Gist is Priscilla Alibi. She did not start the crack epidemic, but you know that thing in high school where everyone just nods at each other and says, sup, but it's a very specific, twitchy, kind of quick twitch head nod. She did invent that. Daniel Schrader is the producer of The Gist. He did not start crack. He did not invent the rhyme, crack is whack, but he did coin the phrase, hugs, not drugs. The Gist, we are on the front lines of Portuguese turkey anatomy ignorance. Um, Peru, de Peru, du Peru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>